15 through 31. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it in my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Would you bow with me? This Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah, our Lord. He is the one who has been promised from as far back as Abraham, from as far back actually as Adam, as the one who would crush the serpent's head. And then to Abraham, and then to Moses, to David, to Jeremiah, and many others in between. And He has come in the person of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity who laid aside the glory of heaven and took on the mantle of humanity so that He might stand in the place of sinners and absorb the wrath of God against sin that we could never absorb and satisfy. An amazing Christ an amazing God, an amazing Savior, in Him and in His name is life. Well, Father, might we not tire of this resurrection story of which we are going to be reminded again this morning, but might it be our satisfaction, our joy, and our delight. 
Would you guide us as we open the Scriptures into an understanding of the Scriptures so that we are drawn and compelled to come to the great Savior, the resurrected Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I neglected to dismiss children to children's church before we read that, so if you have children ages 4 through 2nd grade, they're welcome to be dismissed to go to children's church. They're going to head over to the ministry building very quietly today. And uh, they're going to head over there. And you can pick them up in the ministry building immediately following the service. Sometimes when you're given a good gift, you don't realize just how good it is when you receive it. Like the first time someone gave us a dozen eggs, uh, fresh eggs, and I, I thought, well, that's that's kind of sweet. That's kind of nice. I like eggs and And it's kind of nice to have a dozen eggs I don't need to buy at the grocery store. And then we took them home and we ate them. And it's like, it's like a whole new experience. I just thought of that. Pretty good, huh? It's, it's, it's amazing. And I, I just looked at that gift of the dozen eggs and my heart sang because I didn't know just how good the gift was when it was given. In the middle of my seminary education, I transferred from one seminary to another, and in the midst of that transfer, uh, because of a number of factors, incurred um, a much larger financial obligation. And in making that change, I I knew that I was headed to a a better education, a, a better training, a better equipping for the work of the ministry, but I didn't understand the gift that I was being given with the financial obligation so I would learn to trust God in a fresh way. And and that I would be put in a position where I could see God's work at hand and providing and caring for me in a difficult circumstance. When When I came to Grace Bible Church as a pastor, I'd been looking for a church for about a year and a half. And and when the church called me as pastor, it was my, my heart sang, finally, someone has taken me. And I had no idea the gift that I was being given, how God could take the people of God and knit us together as one body with love and joy and just the sweetness of fellowship that we have shared for a very long time. I, I knew I was getting a gift. I had no idea how great that gift was. Uh, you, you're probably aware I spent a couple of weeks recently traveling, teaching in Russia and then in Israel. And when, um, when we were asked to go back to Russia, we'd, we'd taught biblical counseling there previously, and they asked us to come back and, and teach the third of, of three sessions with the, the people in Siberia and Irkutsk. And, and I knew that that was a privilege. I've always counted that to be just such a tremendous privilege to be able to go. I, I didn't understand, though, the weight of that privilege. The last night we were there before we left, uh, several pastors, uh, Dan Kirk, Eric Mock, and I, and the translator got together to kind of talk about the work of the ministry there and where things were headed. It was a delightful conversation and a delightful meal. At the end of the conversation, one of the pastors turned to me and Dan and said, "I, I want you to be sure to tell your wives thank you for allowing you to come. We know it's a great sacrifice on their part that that they um, allow you to come. And I turned to the translator and 
and said something like this. I said, "Um, I want you to know that my wife um, not only allowed me to come, but she has urged me to come. This, this has been something that she has compelled me to do. She's not only given her blessing, but she has strongly urged and wanted me to come because, because we don't know how long the door of opportunity will be open in Russia. And, and she said, as long as the door is open, you, you have to go. And to be honest, I didn't tell this to him, but to be honest, I, I've just kind of taken Regine's comments about that a little bit lightly and kind of blown them off and just nodded my head and said, yeah. And I said that to Victor Zaitsev, the pastor who had made that comment. And as he heard the translator interpret my comments, he hung his head and he said, I don't want to talk about that. Because the probability that the door will be closed again is very real to them. It was no small thing that we came. He understood uh, the cost that is involved in coming and that the window is likely very short. I knew I'd been given a gift. I didn't know how great that gift was. A little more than, or almost 33 years ago, Regine walked down the aisle towards me in a sanctuary in the state of Washington. And as I watched her walk down that aisle, my heart was bursting with joy as uh, we were about to be united in marriage. And I knew I was getting a gift that day. I've told her a hundred times, I had no idea of what a treasure God was imparting into my life. I I knew I had a gift. I mean, that anybody would marry me, it's got to be a gift. But what a treasure. And what a blessing she has been in my life these 33 years. Sometimes when you're given a good gift, you just don't realize how good that gift is. And nowhere is that more true than of our salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and His resurrection. You've been given a gift if you are in Jesus Christ. And it is the greatest gift that is, that is ever to be imagined by anyone. It is greater than, than you can possibly understand. And, and today I want to peel back, as it were, the window to, to God's provision of this gift and, and pull back the bow and then the wrapping of this gift And help us to see in greater measure the wonder of what God has provided for us. I want to do that in Romans chapter 8. So if you have your copy of the scriptures open with me to Romans chapter 8. We have been in this chapter for some time now. You've heard me say uh, on several occasions that this chapter has been called the greatest chapter in the greatest letter in the greatest book ever written. It is a phenomenal chapter in a phenomenal book. In a book, the Bible, that stands above all other books, this chapter is particularly beloved and it is particularly remarkable in its power and its truth. And one of the things that particularly draws us to this chapter is how Paul unfolds for us the the wonder of our salvation and assures us of our security in that salvation. 
He does that in part in verses 29 and 30 as he reveals what has been called the golden chain of salvation. Verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So, so Paul takes a look at our salvation and he goes back to eternal past and said, God chose some who would belong to him and then those who would belong to him he brought into the process of salvation and he is keeping them and he is keeping them even to the point of glorification so that anyone who enters in eternity past with God's predestination and choosing that one will unfailingly make it through to the end in glorification it is a a golden and wondrous revelation of the salvation that we have received. And then having unfolded that truth, Paul then, starting in verse 31, embarks on a series of questions relating to that salvation. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? Verse verse 31, the end of the verse, if God is for us, who is against us? Verse 32, how will he not freely also give us all things. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Six questions that, that focus on, on our security in Christ, our position in Christ in this great salvation that has been given to us. To those questions, he answers with references particularly to Christ and His resurrection power. And and He refers to the benefit that we derive by being saved by the grace of Christ's resurrection power. These two verses remind us of the power of God to save us and the power of the resurrection to secure us. Let me draw your attention this morning to Christ's resurrection power in verses 33 and verse 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. What this passage tells us is that since Christ is resurrected, the believer is not condemned. Because because Christ has risen victoriously from the grave, the one who believes in Jesus Christ faces no condemnation. I want to focus on these two questions and draw your attention to the reality of Christ's resurrection. Since Christ is resurrected, let us ask and answer these two questions. Who can justly accuse us? Since Christ is resurrected, who can justly accuse us? There are several questions that the, that the believer might ask about his salvation. He might ask, verse 31, what should I think about salvation? What should I think about salvation and the sanctification that is provided by God? So chapter 5 through chapter 8 talks about the process of sanctification. Chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how should we think about the fact that we have been redeemed and then having been redeemed, God is in the process of maturing us, perfecting us, completing us, making us to look like Jesus Christ. But, but even more than that, how should we think about 
the broad picture of, of our salvation. So chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, what should we think about the fact that, that we were sinners, we were separated from God, we were under the condemnation of God, we were, we were under the wrath of God. We were unable to, to save ourselves. What should we think about that? And then what should we think about, about our salvation, how God has justified us, how He's declared us to be right with God through Jesus Christ, even though we ourselves are not right in ourselves. We, we are not righteous, but He has declared us to be righteous because of Christ. That's chapter 3 and 4. And then this whole process of sanctification. What, what should we think about this whole thing? And as we meditate on that, we might ask the question, the end of verse 31, can my salvation be safe with so many people and powers against me? So Paul asks the question this way, if God is for us, who is against us? He's, he's getting at the perception that some might say, Paul, you don't understand the weight of people against me and the trials and the difficulties and the troubles is my salvation safe? Look, look at verse 35, what Paul says there. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You know, all those things that Paul identifies there in verse 35, he didn't just open his thesaurus and said, what are synonyms of persecution? These are realities in Paul's life. This, this is where Paul lived. Paul knew tribulation, Paul knew distress, Paul knew persecution, Paul knew famine, Paul knew nakedness, being without clothing, without home, Paul knew peril, Paul knew a sword, and far more, he knew what it was to suffer. What, what shall we say? If, if we are in Christ and we face these things, will we be overwhelmed in our salvation? We might ask the question in verse 32, will, will God give us what we need? We, we need Him. If we're going to overcome all those things in verse 31 and verse 35, we need Him to act on us. Will He do that? That's, that's behind the question, how will He not also freely give us all things? To those questions, there's another possible question that one might ask about His salvation. And it, is, it goes along the lines of this, perhaps someone will bring a charge against me that cannot be refuted and cannot be defeated. Someone will make an accusation that cannot be overwhelmed. Perhaps, perhaps someone and will identify my sin and my sin will overwhelm God's grace. And so Paul asks the question in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect. That, that word charge is a legal word and Paul is asking a legal question. Who can bring an indictment and a legal accusation against God's elect? In other words, if, if we were to go to a court of law, who could stand and make a legal accusation against those who belong to Jesus Christ? Well, the term is different in Revelation chapter 12, that is the very thing that Satan is always doing. He always stands as the accuser of the brethren. He always, as it were, stands before God's throne and brings accusation against believers. Can you believe Terry ends? Can you believe what he has done? Can you believe what his life is like? And you say that he is safe? 
Really? Let me show you all the things that he has done that, that accuse him and are against him. We get an indication of Paul's answer to the question just by the way he asks the question. Notice he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And he seems to be alluding back to verse 30 and this golden chain of salvation. So we have been elected by God. We've been predestined by God. We have been purposed by God, foreknown by God for salvation. And and if we're in that salvation in the eternal past, we will be in that salvation in the end. We, we can't drop out. We can't be taken out. We can't lose our salvation. And Paul reminds us just by the way he asks the question, if we are elect, there's no accusation that can be brought against us. But notice also what he says about those who are elect, and that is they are God's elect. That is, they belong to Him. They're, they're not just elect on their own volition or out of their own will, but, but it's God who has elected them. It's God who's brought them to salvation. It's God who's keeping them in salvation. They belong to Him in every way. Well, if the reader still needs an answer to the question, Paul gives an answer, and the answer is simply this. God is the one who justifies. We are not justified on our own. God justifies us. God is the one who declares us righteous. God is the one who takes the righteousness of Christ and imputes it or accounts it to the one who believes in Jesus Christ. God is the one who removes the condemnation of sin. We don't do anything for ourselves to save ourselves Paul is emphatic here. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who declares righteous. And my my friends, if God does it, then we are secure in His power and His authority. Now, are there accusations? Oh, certainly. But But the accuser of the brethren, Satan, doesn't have as ammunition our accusations against us. If he is going to bring an accusation that can stand in this court of law, he needs to bring an accusation that can overwhelm the righteousness of Christ. The only accusation that can possibly remove our justification from us is an accusation that destroys Christ's work. If if he is going to account for sin, he must account for sin in Christ. He must account for inadequacy in Christ. And obviously he can't do that. My brothers, if we are in Jesus Christ, only an accusation that can stand against Christ can overwhelm us. And since God justifies us on the basis of the one who is undefeatable, Oh, my brothers, we are safe. We are secure. We are kept. We are assured. Says one writer, when God justifies a person, all accusations at once lose their validity. 
all of Satan's accusations and all of his other questions and all of his other condemnations are thrown out of court because Christ is the one who justifies and God is the one who justifies through Christ. Says one writer, commentator, when God enters into judgment, the outlook for the opposing party is bleak. So, so when God enters into judgment against man, if man is standing on his own self, then, then his outlook is bleak. He, how can he stand before the living God? Then the commentator continues. But if God takes the side of the defendant, no amount of evidence for the prosecution can procure an adverse verdict. Oh, my brothers, our justification is not yet complete. We, we have been declared righteous but we are not fully righteous yet. That day is still coming. But don't assume that there are accusations that can stand against you if you have been justified. You are no longer open to being accused. If you are in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is fully yours and your sin can no longer be held against you. Once God has justified someone, The statute of limitations for accusations against him is ended. It's over. You are free from God's wrath because God has delivered you to Christ from his wrath. But my friend, if you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian, if you you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then this is not true of you. If you are not a Christian, then verse 31, then God is not for you. He is against you. Verse 32, if you are not a Christian, then God has not freely given you all things. In fact, God has withheld things from you. You do not have life. And verse 33, you are still guilty of all the charges against you. There is hope, however, and that hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin, then you have hope. And friend, you must believe. You must believe. In fact, God commands all men everywhere to believe. And when we say believe, we we simply mean to trust that Christ did everything that God says He did in these verses for you, that, that He has absorbed the wrath of God. Verse 32, that God delivered Him over to judgment, that God poured out His wrath on Him, that He absorbed the wrath of God, that He, he overwhelmed the wrath of God with His righteousness, and that His death was satisfactory to God to pay the penalty of sin. And and you believe, you must believe that that is true and you must believe that since that is true, Christ is now worth living for, that that He is Lord and Master and Savior and you want to live for Him and with Him and to Him. Believing in Christ means believing that He is better than anything else in this world and you want Him above every other thing in this world. If you are not a Christian this morning, I urge you and compel you, you must believe in Christ. Since Christ is resurrected, who can justly accuse us if we are in Him? There's a second question, verse 34. Since Christ is resurrected, who can condemn us? Who can condemn us? 
Who is the one who condemns? Paul asks. He asks the question because God's condemnation is very real. God does condemn sin and sinners. Though The whole world is under the examining eyes and condemnation of God. We see this back in chapter 3 uh, as, as Paul finishes up several chapters of, of talking about the sinfulness of man. He says in, in verse 19 of chapter 3, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed In other words, no one can say to God, I'm okay on my own. And then Paul adds, and all the world may become accountable to God. There's an accountability to God. We we in our sin have to give an answer to Him. And, And He knows everything about us. So the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13, there is no creature hidden from His sight. There's no hiding from God. There's no escaping from God. There's, there's no ignoring God as if He will ignore you if you ignore Him. There's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. It's as if God takes us and splits us open and pulls back the skin of our lives and looks into our souls and He sees every single thing in our soul. So He not only observes what we do, but He observes and is aware of every single thing within us, every wayward thought, desire, motive. And then the writer of Hebrews reminds us we have to do with Him. We we have an accountability to Him. There's no escaping it. The, The condemnation of God is very real. And the insecure person might ask the question, if, if, there's no condom, if, if there is ongoing condemnation for God, even though I'm saved, does God still condemn me? Because I, I see my sinfulness. I see my propensity to go towards the flesh. And, and, and knowing my propensity to go towards the flesh, am I still under the condemnation of God? A weak-hearted person might experience such condemnation in his, con- in his conscience and assume that his salvation is inadequate. But what Paul asserts in this verse is that what is important is not our righteousness. What is important is Christ's righteousness. It is Christ and not our heart and not our righteousness that matters. Paul would have us to recognize there is no viable condemnation for the believer because of Christ and because of His work and particularly for four works. And he reminds us of truths which we probably already know, but truths that we need to be reminded of and how they liberate us from condemnation. First of all, Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ died. Now, It's true that many people have died. In fact, in the history of the world, all people have died except for Elijah and Enoch. And everyone who is alive will die. There's no escaping death. As someone has said, death is one out of one. Everybody dies. And yet, notice what Paul says. He says, Christ Jesus is He who died. And the way he says it, it's as if Christ is the only one that has ever died. Everybody has died or will die. 
But he says there's a singular nature to the death of Christ. There's, there's a particularity to the way Christ died. While he is one of many who died, his death is a unique death. No one else died like him, and no, one's el- no one else's death had the effect that his death had. His death denotes the complete and just absorption of God's wrath against sin. In his death, the provision of atonement is made completely. That's why we spent the time we did on Friday night thinking about Christ's declaration from the cross, John chapter 19. It is finished. The work of redemption is accomplished. Even though Christ has not yet died when He utters those words, it is so certain what will be accomplished. And He says, it's done. The work of redemption is complete and God is satisfied with my work. My friends, if there is no death of Christ, there is no salvation. Our salvation is dependent on this work and this work is a satisfactory work. His death is the only means to our freedom from condemnation. Now, we, we, we talk a lot about this around here. And you might be yawning. Oh, I wonder if my ham is going to be ready. And thinking, I've heard this before. Friend, do you understand how contrary to the world the truth that Christ died is? I, I, I read an article Friday morning, I saw an article on the website U.S. Catholic entitled, No One Had to Die for Our Sins. That intrigued me. So I read the article and the author says, among other things, this. No one had to die for God to be merciful. Sometimes in the Old Testament, if somebody committed a sin and wanted to get right with God, they would bring what was called a sin offering And what you were trying to do, in a way, was to reset your relationship with God once you had broken it. It wasn't that God needed to be placated in this way, but you needed to say you were sorry. It's very similar in its own way to the theology of the sacrament of reconciliation. Telling your sins to the priest, being sorry, and doing penance doesn't make God merciful. God is already merciful. Reconciliation is something that we do as human beings to reenact getting back on track in our relationship with God. It's reconsecration, a rededication, a setting back on the right path in this relationship. It's a human thing. It's not required to change God's mind from anger to mercy. End quote. No one needed to die. Because God could be merciful and withhold His wrath simply because He wants to. Friends, can God be a just God if He overlooks sin? No, He cannot. If God will be just, if God will do what is right, He must punish sin. Go to, a, go to a traffic court and see how this works. You get a speeding ticket 10 miles an hour over the limit and there's a guy in front of you that gets one that's 15 miles an hour over the limit and the judge says to that guy, um, 
you know, um, you've, you've been in this community a long time and I'm sure you didn't really mean to speed that much. So we're just going to let it go. And then he walks out and you go, huzzah, I'm free. And then he comes to you and he says, 10 miles an hour over the limit. That'll be $350, please. What? It's not just. You can't just overlook sin. It's not fair. It's not right. My friends, if God simply overlooks sin, then He cannot be holy. And if He is not holy, then He is not good. And if He is not good, my friends, then He is evil. And we know that if God simply overlooks sin without death being involved... Um, we know that that is evil because of what it says in Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if the righteousness comes through the law, if there's a means to righteousness that circumvents the cross, he says then, Christ died needlessly. It, It actually gets worse than that. If Christ died needlessly... If Christ didn't have to die, if God could just overlook sin, then God the Father sent Christ to earth to die. And He not only sent Him to die, but He poured out His wrath on Him when He didn't need to. My friends, that's injustice of the greatest order. And if the Father did that to the Son, then the Father is evil. But He's not evil, is He? He has justly poured out His wrath against sin. God must exercise His wrath against every sin in order to be righteous. His grace is not that He overlooks sin, but His grace is that He provided a means for His wrath to be satisfied against Christ, whereby when we trust in Christ, we can avoid the wrath that is due us because of Christ's satisfactory work. My friends, there is condemnation of sin. There is is condemnation of every sin. And the only way for us to escape that is the centrality of the simple truth, Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ died. There is still another work that Christ did to alleviate our condemnation. That's given in the next phrase, Jesus Christ was resurrected. Yes, rather, Paul says, it is He who was raised. In His death, Christ absorbed satisfactorily the wrath of God. And in His resurrection, the Father... Um, demonstrated publicly that His wrath was satisfied against Christ. And we know that His wrath was satisfied against Christ because Christ was raised from the dead by the Father. So in some New Testament passages, as they talk about the resurrection of Christ, it seems to indicate that Christ was resurrected under His own power. So, for instance, a number of passages that indicate this, but one is John chapter 20 that we read earlier. In John chapter 20, verse 9, uh, as the disciples saw the empty tomb, John comments about that observation. He says, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. And the way 
the way John constructs that, it indicates that he must rise under his own power. He's the one who is doing the rising. So Christ resurrects himself. And a number of New Testament passages make the same assertion. Yet it's not just that Christ resurrects himself, but the Father also is involved in this resurrection process. So consider Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Having talked about Christ's death on the cross, it says, verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him, Christ, to be held by its power. So there we actually have both realities. The Father raised him up because Christ had the power to overcome the grave and his power could not be constrained by the, by the grave. So the Father raised him and he raised himself. Now flip over back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 says in verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So, so here, the Father raises the Son through the power of the Spirit. What do we have? We have a Trinitarian resurrection. The Son raises Himself. The Father raises the Son. The Father raises the Son through the power of of the Spirit, the entire Godhead giving affirmation that Christ's work was satisfactory. The Father raises the Son to say, I'm satisfied by your death. This is a reminder that Christ's death was necessary, but His resurrection is also necessary. Says Bruce Ware in his outstanding book, The Man Christ Jesus what is necessary expression what is the necessary expression that Christ paid the debt of sin fully he must rise from the dead if he remains in the grave then the penalty of sin is still being paid and thus its payment has not been made fully and what about sin's power if Christ died for our sin and sin's greatest power is death, then what is the necessary expression that Christ has conquered the power of sin completely and decisively? He must rise from the dead. Well, friends, Jesus Christ's resurrection is critical to us because our life is linked to His. If He is not resurrected, then we will not be resurrected. If He is not alive, then we are not alive. This is the point that Paul went on about at such great length in chapter 6. Remember verse 8? If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. If we have been identified with Christ in His death, then we also are identified with Him in His life, and we have His life. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him because the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you have Christ's Life. That's true. But we also have to say that we are alive only if Christ lives. Our only hope for life is in the life of Christ. If He is not resurrected, 
then we are still fully in bondage to our sin and under God's condemnation. Oh, but friend, He has been resurrected. And because He has been resurrected, the answer to the question, who will condemn us, is no one. If you are in Christ, no one can condemn you because He was resurrected. There's a third reality in this verse, and it is, no one can condemn us because Jesus Christ is at the Father's right hand. Notice Paul says about Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of, of God. To be at the right hand of someone is to be in a position of, of honor, a position of authority, um, a position that's being rewarded as being um, honorable and great and significant and And there is no greater position of authority and power and honor than to be seated at God's right hand. It is the preeminent position in all of the universe. And for the Father to place the Son there says, I accept your death, your resurrection as being sufficient and I restore you to the glory that you deserve. You remember um, Jesus had prayed for the glory of the Father to be restored to Him. John chapter 17, Jesus when He came to earth, Philippians tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that He laid aside all of the rights and privileges of heaven. He, he did not lay aside His deity, but he, he laid aside the honor that was due Him in glory. And in John chapter 17, as Jesus prepare, prepares to go to the cross, says in verse 5, prays in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory I had with You before the world was. In other words, Jesus is praying, I I want back that glory that I had. Would You accept Me back into heaven with that same glory that I had before I took on the mantle of, of humanity? And for Jesus in Romans chapter 8 to be said to be at the right hand of the Father means that the Father has affirmatively answered Jesus' prayer and He has restored every aspect of glory to the, to the Son that the Son had before the Incarnation. He is seated at the Father's throne, His high priestly sacrificial work being completed. He is seated in heaven in authority over all men and all things. And He... And He alone is worthy of that worship. Just listen as I read from the book of Revelation about the worthiness of Christ to sit at the right hand of the Father. I saw on the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. 
And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Who is worthy to be at the right hand of the Father but the resurrected and exalted Christ? And my friend, if, if Christ is at the right hand of the Father, there's no condemnation for you. Two weeks ago tomorrow, I was in Jerusalem with Dan Kirk and Eric Mock. We spent the day walking around the city and we spent a significant amount of time on the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is the place where Solomon's temple was, was the place where the tabernacle first resided and then it was replaced by Solomon's temple. It was raised in A.D. 70. And in the aftermath, the Muslims have come in and built a mosque on that ground. We got up to that Temple Mount and we took some pictures up there. And we wandered over to one side of the Temple Mount that looked down into the Kidron Valley and then up the Mount of Olives. And I thought about Zechariah 14, where it says that the Messiah will come and he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives and it'll be split in two. And then he will come into Jerusalem and take his place on his throne. And I thought about Christ ruling and reigning where a Muslim mosque stands today. It was particularly driven home because as we walked around that mosque, we came to the entrance of the mosque. They said to go into the mosque, you had to take off your shoes. And so we prepared to take off our shoes, except one of the men at the door said, no Christians allowed. On the mount where the presence of God resided for the nation of Israel in the temple for a thousand years, and where Christ will reign for a thousand years. No Christians allowed. It is as if, it is as if Satan through this false religion is trying to push back Christ and say he's not allowed. Friends, he has ascended to the Father. He is at the right hand of the Father. And he is coming back. And He will reign on that place. And if you are in Him, O oh friend, there is no condemnation and there is access to Him. 
There's a fourth reality of what Christ has done to, to remove condemnation from us. And that is that He is interceding on our behalf. In verse 26, we saw that the Spirit takes our weak prayers and intercedes for the weakness and inadequacy of our prayers and delivers um, renewed prayers and right prayers to the throne of God on our behalf. But in this verse, we see not only is the Spirit praying for us, but Christ Jesus, verse 34, also intercedes for us. It is, as it were, as if... Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, leans over to the Father and whispers in His ear the requests that He makes for us. The one who has access to the Father because of the great honor that has been bestowed on Him speaks into the Father's ear the very needs that we have. What does Jesus pray for us? He he prays for freedom from condemnation. He, he pushes back the accusations of Satan against us from Revelation chapter 12. We know also in, in John 14 that he prays for the Spirit to come, with, to, come to us and, and be with us forever. But he also prays for us in two very particular ways. John chapter 17, the great high priest, priestly prayer. In the opening verses, Jesus prays for himself. In the middle verses, he prays for the twelve. And then starting in verse 20, he shifts and he prays for someone else. John 17, verse 20, the Father, excuse me, the Son praying to the Father says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is the twelve, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Who's he praying for? He is praying for us. Because everyone who believes in Jesus Christ has believed through the testimony of the apostles. We all come to Him through the, the testimony that the apostles carried forward. He's praying for us. And what does He pray for us? Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. What's Jesus praying for? He is praying for our sanctification as a testimony to the world. He's praying for you to be sanctified and made like Him. There's something else that He prays as well. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me be with Me where I am, so that, so that they may see My glory which You have given Me. For You loved Me before the foundation of the world. What's He praying for? He's praying for the perseverance of their salvation and for their glorification. And friend, watch this. If Christ, the sinless God-man, prays it, you know that every request He makes can only be in accordance with the will of God. And if it is in the will of God, it will be accomplished. Is there any condemnation? No. 
If you are in Christ, there's no condemnation because the Son is praying for you that you will be kept and sanctified and glorified and brought home. Oh, friend, if you're in Jesus Christ, there is no accusation. There is no condemnation. Every year at Easter, we have a protracted remembrance of Christ's death and resurrection. Every communion Sunday, we spend particular time thinking about Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. Every Sunday, we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. The fact that we worship on Sunday reminds us of the resurrection. And we we spend time every Sunday thinking about Christ and, and His redemptive work on the cross. Every time we pray, we have access to the Father's throne. It comes through Jesus Christ. It's a reminder of what we have in Christ and the cross. Why why are we so consumed with Christ, with the cross, and with the empty tomb? Why, Why do we put crosses on walls of churches? Why do we wear crosses, some of us? Because... Because without the cross, there is only accusation and only condemnation. And friend, with the cross, there is no accusation and there is no condemnation. Why am I consumed with Jesus Christ? Why why are we consumed with the cross? Because it's the only means to being free from condemnation. And friend, if you are in Christ, you are free indeed. Our Father, we thank You for Christ resurrected. Thank You that He accomplished what we could never do on our own. Thank You that He satisfied You when we could never satisfy You. Thank You that He atoned for and bought back and is redeeming sin in a way that we could never do. He paid for a penalty of sin that that we could never pay for even were we to spend all eternity in hell. And He did it in three hours on the cross. Such a great Savior. Such a great resurrected Savior. Such a great ascended Savior. Such a great interceding Savior. Oh, Father, might we rest. Might we rest in the lack of condemnation we have before You if we are in Christ because of Christ our Savior. And Father, there undoubtedly are some here this morning who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. Would You convict them of their sin? Would You convict them of their folly in trying to redeem themselves? And Father, would You have them to realize the hope of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, victorious, and interceding. Might they turn to Him and find Him to be their satisfaction today. We pray in Christ's great name. Amen.